Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, what's next for Canada as it continues to respond to Ukraine's requests for help? This is a, a, an extraordinarily difficult issue because we see the, the impact of the bombs and the cruise missiles falling on hospitals, on schools, on Ukrainian civilians. It is heartbreaking to see these images every day of Vladimir Putin's violence, against innocents across Ukraine. NATO plans to increase its military presence in Eastern Europe. We face a new reality for our security. So we must reset our collective defense and deterrence for the longer term. And the federal government is expected to announce that as of April 1st, Canadian-bound travelers will no longer have to provide a pre-arrival COVID test. There was no purpose to either because Omicron is Spread and you were likely to get it on the subway in Toronto as you were in transit. So, yeah, good riddance, and I think uh, long overdue. It's Thursday, March 17th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. So the situation in Ukraine seems to be getting worse day by day. And while there are signs that the sanctions and other measures put in place by Canada and other Western countries have had some effect, perhaps, I think a lot of people are wondering if they've had enough effect and whether they will change the course of of this this uh, invasion by Russia. So. What do you see, especially after this week's historic speech to the uh, to Canadian Parliament by President Zelensky? Um, what do you see as Canada's role next, and and even what steps will NATO potentially take in the days ahead? You know, I think the signs have been reasonably optimistic that, that negotiations are happening between the Russians and the Ukrainians because the the Russian effort appears to be mired in, in Ukraine. They, they can't seem to make any major advances. And therefore, a negotiated settlement would seem to be possible. We heard uh, President Zelensky saying that he, he now appreciates that uh, Ukraine may never be a member of NATO, for example, which is kind of new language. So on the assumption that if you're optimistic a negotiated settlement ceasefire can be reached, then obviously good news. But I don't think anybody can possibly believe that this crisis is over, even with a uh, a negotiated settlement in in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, Putin was on on air in Russia uh, last evening, and it was the babblings of a what seemed like a madman. He, he was talking about self-purification and uh, continuing on. I mean, public opinion polls in Russia suggest that 75 to 85% of, of the population are with him in a mission that goes beyond, well beyond Ukraine. Where, where should we go next? Well, Poland, according to 50-plus percent of the people who, who answered this opinion poll. So I, I do think that, that we're in it for the long haul. The world has changed, and I'm not sure that um, many people, including the government of Canada, appreciate that and that, so i think where we're going next for canada is that we need to ramp up over a period of time our ability to defend ourselves and to have a su- sufficient deterrent and this applies equally to every other country in nato bar the us to have a sufficient deterrent to, to persuade vladimir putin that moving into 
Lithuania or Poland or Latvia is prohibitive for them. It would be cost prohibitive. It would cost them too much in blood and treasure. And do you think Canada is ready to make those kinds of decisions? I know the defense minister, Anita Anand, has has been asked a lot of questions about that lately. Will we increase our military spending, for example? Uh, and uh, there seems to be some discussion about that happening. So is that a realistic next step? Well, I think it is. I mean, the, uh, the first ministers are meeting in Brussels next week. Trudeau's going to Brussels. Jens Stoltenberg, the, the NATO head, was reminding people that, they, that all the countries in NATO agreed to 2% back in 2014, and none of them have hit that target. And Anne said on Wednesday that um, she would present the government with a, or the finance minister with a range of options that would go beyond 2%, would match 2%, or fall short of 2%. And there are indications that the government is uh, is thinking about trying to hit one of those targets. I mean, uh, uh, Christy Freeland, when she was in Europe last week, said that the government is thinking about defence spending. And, you know, currently, just to give people context, it's about, we spend about $23 billion on, on uh, defence at the moment. This would take us to somewhere closer to $40 billion. And there are ways to do it that it wouldn't necessarily drive us into massive deficits. A lot of uh, capital spending for defence equipment is done uh, on an accrual basis, that, an accounting method, which which wouldn't necessarily stick all the costs in one year or two years or even 10 years. Right. So if you spread the, spread the costs out, let's say, for example, the government opts to buy submarines, um, which is one thing that has been discussed in the, the Conservatives' campaign in, in the last election. If you were going to do that, you wouldn't necessarily say, well, we're going to spend $50 billion on submarines and, and stick it all in the first couple of years uh, and, and blow the deficit. So, John, is this the beginning of a new chapter, do you think, with uh, perhaps a greater military presence in Eastern Europe, uh, Canada contributing to that, uh, more awareness of, of the risks and threats that could be happening in that part of the world and the responsibility that we have as a country to to answer those? Uh, is that is that something that's going to, to dominate our decision making in the next few years? I think undoubtedly. I mean, I think anybody who doesn't believe that is not paying attention. You know, I don't think NATO is is currently ready for for what is coming at it. It's not uh, it's not re-equipped and it's not uh, reinforced in Eastern Europe. Although, you know, today there was footage of of Abrams tanks being uh, moved by train through Dusseldorf in Germany. So, you know, clearly we are getting to that point. NATO is calling for more permanent deployments. Those final decisions are said to be being taken in Madrid in June when uh, NATO has its annual meeting. Although, obviously, when uh, Trudeau and all the other first ministers meet next week, there's a, a prospect that they may expedite that procedure or that process. But, um, you know, currently the, the call for major investments and a change of mindset, I think, is the, is the, the real call because I think we are now in whether it's a new Cold War or worse, the world has changed. It's a much more dangerous place than it was even two months ago. All right. Closer to home, John, for returning Canadian travelers who are coming back to the country after being abroad, uh, the government is apparently going to be lifting 
the requirement that you do a COVID test before you come back as of April 1st. So um, is, this is this is obviously one of the measures that's affected a lot of people as they've as they've gone to other places even during the pandemic. Uh, is this another sign that we are getting closer and closer to uh, a world with a lot fewer restrictions on us? Yes, I think this is, and it's long overdue. This this um, part of the process didn't make sense. I mean, I, I know this from my own experience doing it. Um, you know, for example. Uh, when I came back from Scotland in, in February, I had to get a, a PCR test done in the UK, and I had to rush to get. I mean, it was unbelievable. They actually managed to get the results to me, but you had to get those results before you got on the plane. Now they've since changed that to a, an antigen test, which is less restrictive and easier to get, but still a requirement that you need some kind of supervision from a third party to to, to say that the test was actually negative before you yeah. got on the plane. There was another requirement that when you landed, a certain number of people, and I was unlucky enough to get picked, were chosen to do another PCR test in the airport. I never actually got the result from that test. It was so inefficient that the result was never even able emailed to me, even though I, I was expected to quarantine for 14 days. I mean, I think this is what really annoys people, is that the system doesn't work as it's planned to work. And... So people are inconvenienced and the people who've come up with the ideas are maybe none the wiser, but it, it just did not work. And I yeah. think that the idea that uh, the government has uh, seen, there was no purpose to it either because Omicron has spread and you were as likely to get it on the subway in Toronto as you were in transit. So yeah, good riddance and I think uh, long overdue. All right. And that's effective next Friday. So very soon. John? We hope. Yeah. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. We will continue to stand up and support Ukraine with humanitarian support, with refugee support, but also with equipment, military equipment, and lethal equipment as well. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Terry Glavin writes that Vladimir Putin is winning and the rest of us are mired in our own uselessness. Glavin writes, Putin's outrages against common decency and international law have united the global community of democracies around President Zelensky's valiant cause. NATO, particularly, is united and strong. The UN General Assembly has sternly rebuked Russia in a vote that reaffirmed Ukraine's sovereignty. In the United States, President Joe Biden is generously credited with drawing Europeans and Americans together after the long and bitter estrangement of Donald Trump's presidency. The European Union, too, has never been this united, we are also told. And yet none of this has really mattered a damn. Putin's artillery and cruise missiles and cluster bombs continue to reduce Ukrainian cities to rubble, one after the other. That's how things are shaping up at the moment, anyway. Putin is winning... And the rest of us are united in a quagmire of our own uplifting, heartwarming uselessness. In the Globe and Mail, Robin Urbach writes that Canada can't save the world, but we can fulfill our commitment to Afghan refugees. Urbach writes, Seven months ago, we were captivated and horrified by images of Afghan citizens desperately clinging to planes while trying to evacuate Kabul to escape Taliban rule. This week, 
We are captivated and horrified by images of pregnant Ukrainian women clinging to their bellies as they evacuate a maternity hospital bombed in Maripol. But even if the world's focus is now elsewhere, the suffering in Afghanistan endures. The IRCC is currently working overtime, processing new immigration streams for Ukrainians fleeing the war. No such program is available to Afghan nationals. Evacuating Afghans to Canada has been and continues to be more complicated than it is to do the same for Ukrainians. The urgency of the situation in Afghanistan hasn't faded, even if our attention has. In the Toronto Star, Bob Hepburn says, Money and vote splitting both favor Doug Ford in Ontario's June election. Hepburn writes, Although Ford and his progressive conservatives currently lead in the polls, history teaches us that anything can happen during an election campaign. Ford is set to enter the formal election period with major advantages over the new Democrats and liberals. The Tories already have a huge campaign war chest. Ford will also benefit mightily from the split on his left, where the NDP and liberals are battling for progressive votes. Ford's recent decision to eliminate virtually all vaccine mandates and masking requirements is supported by more than half of those surveyed. Incumbency and name recognition are also major factors at the riding level. Overall, Ford has a clear advantage over his opponents right now. But as we have learned, campaigns do matter. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will speak with the President of France, Emmanuel Macron. He will then participate virtually in a panel discussion as part of the Xi Conference. While in the Greater Toronto Area, the Prime Minister will visit a local Persian business to highlight Nauru's. He will then be joined by the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Carolyn Bennett, to visit a supervised consumption site and meet with workers and volunteers. The Minister of Health, Jean-Yves Duclos, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra, and Tourism Minister Randy Boissonneau will hold a news conference to announce updates to the border measures implemented to protect the health of Canadians from COVID-19. Governor-General Mary Simon will begin a working visit to the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Kuwait. Minister of Justice and Attorney General David Lametti will make a funding announcement related to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to Action 50. Minister of Northern Affairs Dan Vandal will be in Calgary to announce federal support for some of Calgary's innovative and leading-edge firms. In Burlington, Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne will announce an investment to help create a greener economy and support middle-class jobs. And Minister of Emergency Preparedness Bill Blair will hold a virtual media availability following a meeting with federal, provincial, territorial ministers for emergency management. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, March 17th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.